Hey, Jay, you keep track of multiverse stuff. How does Warlock do in other timelines? It varies pretty pronouncedly. In several, he's pretty much the same, but there are a few where he strays fairly far from model. He's also met with more than a few grim fates, but that's hardly unique to him, and it's also kind of true of the 616 version, so, you know. Well, how far off can he really get? I mean, unless you pretty much rewrite the nature of the technarchy. No, they actually keep that really consistent. Um, Well, I mean, I, I guess the most pronounced change there is in the cartoon. There's no technarchy in the cartoon? No, there is a technarchy, and it's there, and it's pretty similar, except that Warlock is... Evil? Married. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 155 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the next big X event, that being... Inferno. That's right, everything's been leading up to this moment. There's the Madeline Pryor stuff, there's Ilyana Rasputin losing her soul in limbo. No, we're kidding, it's actually Extinction Agenda. Yeah, uh, not Inferno for once. I mean, you know, there is some fallout from Inferno, because, like, the one time that Madeline Pryor was in Genosha... Well, and Cameron Hodge, man. Oh, yeah, of course. Cameron Hodge is by far and away the biggest fallout from Inferno, at least as relevant to this particular crossover. And he is very relevant to this crossover, which we'll get to as we talk about it. But, yeah, the Extinction Agenda, it it was 1990's Big X crossover, because, you know, at this point, they were doing X crossovers with some regularity. But it also pioneered a new structure for those crossovers. This is the first sort of ABC-ABC crossover where you've got a strictly sequential story that's taking place serialized across multiple titles. Right, because with the Mutant Massacre, the first X crossover, you had, you know, different plot lines happening in each book that kind of referenced each other. But were largely happening simultaneously. With Fall of the Mutants, they were entirely separate. Each team just had its own shitty events going on. Here we've got one centralized story that's just scattered across three different series. Yeah, so... In theory, you could read just the X-Men or just the X-Factor, and I guess the books do an admirable job of, in the chapters of a given book, focusing mostly on those characters, but it would be mostly incomprehensible. You know what's kind of depressing? Uh, so many things, especially these days. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, oh man, this is the first modern crossover, you have to buy three series, and then I was thinking, no, if it were a modern crossover, there'd be the ABC-ABC thing going on, but that wouldn't be the main plot. That would take place in an entirely separate miniseries. And then there'd also be a bunch of required tie-ins from other titles. Yeah, they would all have the Extinction Agenda branding and like a great big bar across the top. And you wouldn't have to catch them all, but they would certainly reference each other a fair bit. And some of them would have really critical details that you'd somehow miss. And there'd be a big, enormous Jonathan Hickman-designed chronological map in the back. That being said, I actually do have to give modern events a break. I mean, the idea of having just one central series for the event... And then having the different books sort of tie in, but mostly stand on their own, that can work pretty well. Like, I think it's worked pretty well in the Humans vs. X-Men, for instance. Well, when what you describe actually happens, that's good. Again, I will keep going back to, to the recent Secret Wars as the really good cross-line event, because you could totally skip the main series, or you could read it on its own, entirely divorced from everything else. You'd get everything you needed to get out of it. You'd miss a few Easter eggs, and it would be fine. Like, it was an entirely modular crossover. And I love that. I thought that was really well put together. And I really liked the fact that basically I could follow whatever parts of the story I wanted to with zero obligation or impetus to buy others. And I think as a result of that, I ended up getting way, way more because I didn't have to worry that much about how they all clicked together. Well, and in the case of Secret Wars, it also helps that most of the series were really good. 
Yeah, well, most of the ones we were reading, we were not reading nearly all of the Secret Wars series. So I feel like we can't quite generalize to that extent. But yeah, I was solidly enjoying the ones we were following. But this is, again, this is a different thing. This is sort of the ABC-ABC crossover. And one thing that it does really well that I appreciate is do a pretty consistent job of introducing the characters of each book as they come in so that if you have, for example, just been reading New Mutants and you decide you're just going to pick up the relevant issues of X-Men and X-Factor but not subscribe to the titles, you're not going to be totally lost. Yeah, and of course, if you just happen to get attached to those characters and want to start buying their books after the crossover as well, I'm sure Marvel would not mind. Yeah, and it's not like anything's really going to change majorly after this. It's not like any of these lines are going to like relaunch really soon or anything like that. Oh man, we are right on the cusp of the X-Line changing in ways that I don't think it has done since. Really? Not even New X-Men? Morrison? I mean, that was a thematic relaunch, but in terms of like all of the books reshuffling, well, I guess Marvel kind of does that often. I don't know. Well, now they do it every two weeks, but... <laughs> Pretty much. Not a hoax, not an imaginary story, just another number one. But so the Extinction Agenda... This is a strange crossover because we've had a status quo for a long time where all of the different teams were separated. You know, some of them thought the others were dead. Some of them were just in different cities. Some Some of of them were just kind of in a snit. Right. Well, and the X-Men themselves had ceased to be. So maybe we should start out with a previously in all the X-Books. The X-Men are no longer faking dead. Instead of being in Australia, they're now scattered all the hell over the place. Several of their members had been courted on Muir Island until Muir Island started turning evil and sexy. Now they're in New York, mostly. Right, we have Forge and Banshee in New York working with X-Factor a lot. We have Wolverine, Psylocke, and Jubilee running around Madripoor, and they are all going to come together as part of this. And of course, we have Storm and Gambit, who were in Days of Future Present and kind of joined up with Banshee and Forge, but haven't really done much since. Gambit isn't officially X-Men at this point. He's really just hanging around for Storm, who remains de-aged as a result of Nanny's machinations. What about X-Factor? X-Factor is actually the easy one to describe. X-Factor is, ironically, considering their emotional state, kind of the stable team roster right now. <laughs> right. Um, it's still the original five X-Men, and they are still quartered out of ship, which is Apocalypse's old ship, which is still currently a skyscraper in New York. And they are still making great strides in the field of creative child endangerment. Yes, they are, with Cyclops and Madeline Pryor's son, Nathan Christopher. Speaking of Nathan Christopher, sort of, although that won't be decided for a long time. Speaking of people who will eventually be retconned to have been Nathan Christopher all along. Cable, the mercenary cyborg badass, is leading the New Mutants. He's been quartering them in the sub-basement of the destroyed X-Mansion, which coincidentally is where the X-Men, such as they are, have recently converged. So that's what's going on narratively. Can we take a minute to look at what's happening with the books creatively? Because we're kind of in the middle of a big shift. We're watching maybe not the birth of the 90s. I think the, the 90s have already been birthed, but perhaps the 90s first struggling shrieks and flails. There's certainly some shrieking and flailing going on here. So much shrieking and flailing. I mean cable. (laughs) I guess that's more bellowing. (laughs) Bellowing and flailing. I sort of assumed cable just doesn't have an inside voice at all. So he kind of talks like Patrick Warburton as the tick? But angrier. Really angry all the time. That's genuinely intimidating. Cable, bro. I was just thinking an angry Patrick Warburton. That's also kind of intimidating. (laughs) Well, anyway... Yeah, of course, we had Rob Liefeld start on New Mutants. Louise Simons is still writing that, but Liefeld's art has been influencing the direction of things more and more. When it's actually in the books, because what we're hitting with this event and with the few issues leading up to it is 
the beginning of the end of Liefeld's run. I mean, it's the beginning of the end of New Mutants, too. But um, we're going to see Liefeld drift further and further off of this title, more and more fill-ins, more and more artists, um, until he's actually going to leave a few issues into X-Force. On the X-Men side of things, we have Chris Claremont still writing, as he has been for so many years. And we have Jim Lee drawing. Jim Lee is going to end up kind of the definitive visual force of the 90s, kind of already is. And I gotta say, as someone who is not a Jim Lee fan, I recognize the quality of his work. It is not my style. That's fine. I was really surprised going back by how much I loved him on Extinction Agenda. Like, he is a really, really good cartoonist. And there are a lot of things that he does. There are aspects of his style early on that are tremendously good. And I mean, we've also got, I feel like this is the one era where he and Claremont really clicked as a creative team too. Oh yeah, they are killing it in these issues. No question there. Yeah, later on, we're going to see a lot of tension between the two of them and a lot of story and art disconnect. But here, they are pretty much a well-oiled machine. They are working in really terrific sync. On the X-Factor side of things, Louise Simonson is still writing that book as well as New Mutants. There's not really a regular artist. I mean, we had a long Walter Simonson period. We've had uh, various other artists do various eras. As always, a too brief Paul Smith. Yes, always too brief. In the Extinction Agenda, we have John Bogdanov of Power Pack fame doing the art. And his art's really weird here. And we'll talk about that as we get to it. I don't know to what extent the issues I have with the X-Factor art are Bogdanov and to what extent they are Al Milgram's inking. But there's some weirdness, and we're going to talk about that at more length as it comes up narratively. So that's where we are now. We're also, you know, at the point where the X-Men are really the center of Marvel's line. They are the best-selling titles in the roster, and they're getting editorial attention to an extent and at a level that they really never have before now. You know, we had our first crossover, Mutant Massacre, and that was basically creator-driven. And we're seeing more and more editorial involvement and mandate as part of the line here. What this crossover was originally supposed to be was the Mutant Wars, and we've talked about that in a number of past episodes, but basically there was going to be a big event that included all the books, even Excalibur, which the Extinction Agenda does not, and had a bunch of different mutant groups all essentially have a great big war. Never happened. I'm always eager to find out more about why, so maybe one of these days we can corner Claremont or Simonson and ask them. So with that, let's dive into Uncanny X-Men number 270, First Strike. So Uncanny X-Men number 270, in addition to the other Uncanny X-Men issues and New Mutants issues, is on Marvel Unlimited. If you've been following along with Marvel Unlimited, go for it. Unfortunately, what's not on Marvel Unlimited is any of the X-Factor material. It is collected in a couple of the Essentials collections. There are some discussion threads about that um, in previous episodes on our website that you can you can find. And of course, the Extinction Agenda itself has been collected into trade paperback and hardcover a couple times. But if you're just using Unlimited, you're out of luck for a third of the story, which is truly unfortunate. Marvel, if you're out there... Uh, are you there, Marvel? It's me, Jay. <laughs> I feel pretty strongly that if you're running a service like Unlimited, you should be paying attention to getting complete story arcs on there. That includes all of the aspects of a crossover. If you don't feel like scanning or doing, you know, high quality digital files of all of X Factor, that's fine. But maybe just the issues that tie really directly into crossover events where you've got everything else up would be a plus. But yeah, Uncanny X-Men number 270. So the first issue of the Extinction Agenda starts out with one of my very favorite comic book narrative conventions, that being the Dramatis Personae, labeled as the Dramatis Personae. Aw, I thought you were going to say an explosion. No, those are fine too. But what I really love is seeing all the characters lined up next to each other, being all colorful and awesome with their names in little boxes. Not only is it a good way to get people up to speed with who the characters are, if, like you said, they're coming from just New Mutants or just X-Men or whatever, 
it's also just a really cool way to have them all in one place at the same time. And my collector's brain is so happy. Well, and it immediately brings to mind Asgardian Wars and Art Adams, which puts us in an already favorable mindset to start this particular book. But there's another thing that it does that I think is important. And we talked earlier today about how much we both like this as compared to the little heads in boxes, sort of yearbook style character disambiguation page. And I think a lot of that is because, especially with the stylized art of superhero comics, being able to see costumes, hair and relative height is really critical to being able to identify characters later in context. Yeah, I mean, Jim Lee's better at differentiating characters facially and body language and body structure-wise than some other artists are, but it's still very helpful. Some other artists? Some other hypothetical artists who might have worked on the Extinction of uh, in other titles, yes. But anyway, what we start out with as well as our disambiguation dramatis personae is a news report about what's going on in Genosha, because if you haven't been picking up X-Men, you probably haven't seen Genosha before, and it's kind of relevant. Right, so... Genosha is a South African apartheid metaphor slave state where mutants are identified genetically around when they hit puberty, brainwashed and genetically rewritten to be slaves of the state. Their entire infrastructure is built on this system, and we've seen before that they violently enforce it at home, and they violently basically pursue any escapees abroad. Genosian citizens can't really leave. And the X-Men, well, various members of the X-Men— have been helping a couple of Genosian fugitives, Philip Morrow and Jenny Ransom, the latter of whom is a mutate, a mutant slave, dodge capture by the Genosian magistrates in the United States. Now, Moreau and Ransom are of particular interest to the Genosians because Philip Moreau is the son of the Genjineer, the hilariously named fellow responsible for basically inventing and enacting the process of making the mutates, the genetic rewriting, etc., so all of that background there, we cut to the danger room because, man, we haven't had a danger room open in a long time, but we finally get one. Storm and Jean are fighting it out in a pretty generic danger room setting. The idea of this exercise is basically to see what Storm's capabilities are in her currently teenaged body. She's being supervised from above, or they're being supervised, by Forge Banshee and someone we haven't seen in a very long time, Stevie Hunter. Oh man, I love Stevie Hunter. She was a dance instructor who used to train the new mutants in a lot of stuff, including dance. And the last time we saw her was actually in 1987's New Mutants number 48. Although the editorial note doesn't even know that. But we did. We looked it up. Yeah, the editorial note's just like, remember her? It's been a while. And it's damn nice to see her again. And we talked in the last Uncanny X-Men episode we did about how we're seeing more classic X-Men concepts come back. In that case, it was the Savage Land as a setting and Magneto in his villainous red and purple clad role. In this case, we have characters training in the danger room. We have Stevie Hunter back. It's feeling very much like the early to mid-80s, and as a big fan of the early to mid-80s, I'm okay with that. I mean, Claremont was doing some interesting stuff at this point, but having Jim Lee, who reportedly was much more into the classic X-Men feel, have some influence, I don't think that's a bad thing. Now, Stevie is there in her capacity as a physiotherapist and as the New Mutants, basically, physical trainer. And Stevie is justifiably very concerned with how what Storm is doing is going to interact with her teenage body because she's using powers and she's using fighting techniques and physical movements that she learned with and she learned assuming the capabilities of an adult body that had stopped growing. And in fact, while Storm does kick Jean's ass, partially with her powers and partially by being sneaky because Aurora is very sneaky. She is. She's totally sneaky. And if sneaking doesn't cut it, she'll fucking stab you. That does happen if you're Callisto or some other people. Hell yeah. But yeah, Storm falls out of the sky. She basically runs out of juice, hence Stevie's scolding. 
Fortunately, Jean manages to catch her and everything is okay, but the session is interrupted by the entrance of the New Mutants, led by a very irate Cable who feels strongly that scheduling shared facilities is for toddlers, and grown-ups just kick down the fucking door. My people know their responsibilities, Banshee. They don't need any Mickey Mouse schedules. What? I don't know what a Mickey Mouse schedule is, but Cable saying Mickey Mouse in his Cable voice makes me very happy in any context. You want to do it again a few times? Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Try more threatening. Mickey Mouse. Like he killed your father. Mickey Mouse. Nicely done. Thanks. <laughs> if there's ever another X-Men animated series, if Cable ever says Mickey Mouse, please feel free to use that sample. Yeah, so I'm going to put this under Cable, your post-apocalyptic future is bad at everything. <laughs> Including taking turns, apparently. Right. I mean, I was going to say, like, I feel like, no, it's kids who go, we don't need schedules. I want this thing and I want it now. Like, grownups do actually schedule use of shared facilities. That's a thing that adults do. And that's definitely a thing military people do. So I don't know what the hell is going on with Cable. I'm just saying, Google Calendar may not have been invented in 1990, but Cable's from the future. It was totally invented by then. Well, a piece of paper taped to the door works pretty well, too. No, he'd have to stab it to the door with a great big knife. No, it's Cable. He'd shoot it to the door. <laughs> Good point. With some kind of ridiculous energy gun. And then the entire door would be electrified. And no one would be able to use the room, which would, I guess, solve his problem. See? Perfect. Good strategy. Storm may be in a teenage body, but... She does have her full adult personality back, like you mentioned, Jay, and so she totally plays Peacemaker here. Cable, you will have to accept that the New Mutants are part of a greater whole. And like it or not, these facilities must be shared. Just as we, Banshee, must concede Cable's place as the New Mutants' leader. We may not like his style, but we cannot deny what he has accomplished. Meanwhile, in Malibu? Strong Guy is being awesome. Freddy Stanichek is going after Dazzler. He is trying to find her, and he does not quite understand that doing a nice thing for her does not entitle him to her company or location. Fortunately, Guido Caracella, soon to be known as Strong Guy, is there to explain at great length and then eventually put him in a car and carry the car off. Yeah, Freddy Stanichek, to remind everybody, is the Dazzler fan who dug up the old print of Dazzler the movie and got her back into Hollywood. But I really love the way Guido explains why this isn't okay for Freddy to be basically stalking her. The lady wanted her itinerary made public. She'd left Void. Since she did not, she must obviously prefer solitude. Am I right? You're right, Guido. Well done. And after Guido finishes carrying Freddy off in his convertible, which is a hilarious mental image that I love... I love the conceit of people carrying cars with other people in the cars. Like, that's just never not funny. Never not funny, absolutely. Or vehicles in general. Just the, I am going to pick up this vehicle and put it somewhere else that it could have driven. <laughs> Anyway, after he finishes doing this, he hears a science fiction zappy sound from closer to the house and finds a badly beaten Lila Cheney lying on the ground, muttering about how everyone's in danger and the X-Men and Professor X. Now, the last time we saw Lila, she was escaping a bunch of aliens in space, and here she is now. Spoiler, this will be irrelevant until after the extinction agenda. Forget it for now. Exactly. Forget we ever said anything. Forget this podcast. Forget your names. Forget your lives. Hitchhike to the Midwest. Start a new life as a short-order cook in a diner, always wondering whether you're running from something and what may be only a step behind. Change your name, move towns every few weeks, never lose the feeling that something may be following you, chasing you. Make your way into the wilds of Canada, befriend the bears, but they look at you too. Keep heading north. It's the only way. It's the only way. Dude, I am so creeped out right now. 
I'm pretty proud of having just pulled that out of nowhere. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we pre-write some of the jokes on this show, but Jay, you just said that. Well done. So I know there's improv comedy. Is there, like, improv dread, I guess? Well, there is now. So after that, I feel like we should probably go somewhere comforting. So let's go to, I don't know, somewhere nice and nostalgic, since that's what X-Men's doing these days. Let's go to Harry's Hideaway. Where Jean is drinking with a decidedly underage Aurora. I think Aurora's just having lemonade or something. It's Aurora. You think being underage is going to stop her? She'll be like, fuck no, give me some vodka or I will stab you through the heart. It's totally a Long Island iced tea. She learned about that from Wolverine, about that mysterious drink only found in Madripoor. <laughs> Are you kidding? She's been traveling with Gambit. I assume it's just all hurricanes from here. Oh, God, probably. But I really love this scene because, as we know, Aurora and Jean were good, good friends back in the day. I mean, okay, technically it wasn't Jean, it was the Phoenix impersonating Jean, but Jean has those memories, so it might as well have been. And seeing them together, seeing this awesome female friendship on panel for the first time in years and years, is just heartening. And the dialogue in this scene is just great, too. There's one bit where I feel like Jean just has the most Claremonty moment I've ever seen. I tell you, Aurora, the harder we try to untangle this mess, the tighter it seems I'm tied to it. But listen to me, natter, 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 the way I'm running on, you'd think I was paid by the word. Wah, wah. What I really like is their toast as they talk about old times. From one catastrophe to the next. Till death do us part. That'll be the day. To the X-Men, then, who do not die the old-fashioned way. And no matter how hard we try. None of us die forever. Oh, man, it's just... I don't know, the, the sense of history to their friendship, it's all right here. Well, and as Charles Soule pointed out on Twitter recently, it's kind of the definitive X-Men panel on a couple levels, that specific exchange. It is a moment of downtime. It's an intense friendship between two women. It's that self-awareness and also just the everyone comes back from the dead always. <laughs> yeah, thematically and structurally, it's a lot of the appeal of X-Men summed up in a single kind of perfect moment. So as they say goodbye and Jean flies off, a sort of uncharacteristically angry Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair, bounds up to Storm. I missed you. I'm so glad you're alive. How nice for you. Pity some others were not quite so lucky. Because Rain just saw Aurora come back from the dead, you know? The X-Men have died a couple times at this point, and her best friend, her possible boyfriend that was kind of unclear, but Doug Ramsey, who sacrificed his life to save her, is still dead. And when you think about Despite it... Despite Warlock's best efforts. Well, yeah. But when you think about it, the New Mutants, the teenagers, have suffered a hell of a lot more tragedy than the X-Men ever did. They have. And Rain in particular is in just a really rough place right now because not only has she gone through all of this, but on the exiting cusp of it, her guardian, the person she trusted more than anyone else in the world, has turned both evil and sexy. I mean, the last time Moira McTaggart showed up, she was evil, sexy Moira, half-possessed by the Shadow King, and she was a total dick to Rain. It was terrible. So Rain is having a rough time, and she's got a lot of anger to work out. One of the things that I think is, is consistently true of Rain throughout this event and before is that she never really stops being an optimist, and so every fall hits her so much harder than the people around her. Storm tries to comfort Rain and speaks of how the X-Men themselves have had to make various sacrifices— totally doesn't work. Rain is still super pissed. And finally, you know, we get a conversation between Storm and Stevie where Storm sort of admits, well, you know, maybe faking our own deaths for an extended period did more harm than good, really. If only we could have learned that. If only we knew someone who frequently faked their own death to get out of trouble and caused more trouble by doing so. If only there had been some mentor figure who could have taught us such an object lesson. Too bad. 
<laughs> I mean, to be fair, Storm wasn't there when Xavier faked his own death. She came Which later. time? You know, the main time, with Changeling. Well, there's not too much time for regret, as the various new mutants in skimpy swimsuits uh, play on the shore in the background, because suddenly, a portal opens, and a ton of heavily armed Genosian soldiers pour out of the portal and attack. Shouldn't they be naked? So Pipeline's teleportation makes people naked sometimes, but Or not... is it one-way nudity, where they're naked only on the way to Genosha, but not from Genosha? I think maybe that's how it works, yeah. Uh-huh. That's a very specific power. It, yeah, it really is. Well, I, maybe there's some kind of technological assist on the way out that's not portable so that they can't, you know, take it with them and use it on the way back. I think the problem is it's 1990, so, like, their modem speed was just not high enough yet. I mean, we didn't have any blazing fast 56K back then. So what you're saying is that Genosha got those seriously big deal modems beforehand while the rest of us were still crawling along at, like, 2400 BPS? Yeah, basically. Now, these are more advanced Genosian troops than we've seen before, and the way Jim Lee draws their, like, science fiction-y, like, ATST walker, flying skiff thing, awesome bug helmet-looking stuff technology is super rad. Unfortunately, it creates a conundrum that we're going to have to deal with later. Here's the problem with having Jim Lee design the fancy army tech for your crossover when, for instance, one of the other artists in it is Rob Liefeld. The Genosian tech is inconsistent between artists, and Bogdanov is certainly guilty of that as well. Yeah, but the level of shift, you just kind of got to run with it. Rule of cool. Speaking of running, that's what the X-Men start doing because they are horribly outclassed. I mean, we've seen the fact that Genosha is an expert state at fighting mutants. I mean, that's what their economy is based on, and they kind of kick the crap out of the new mutants who are out there, and Storm. Well, they're not specifically experts at fighting mutants. They're experts at subduing mutants, mostly in context of their own social system. But they've been more and more and more externally aggressive lately, and we'll find out soon that they're doing that with the aid of a particularly hostile force. That's right, because just... (laughs) I see what you did there. Well, anyway, Storm, realizing that they are totally outmatched, throws the injured Stevie Hunter down the hatch to the X-Men basement sublevels, and zaps the hell out of it, fusing it shut. That means that Stevie is safe, but it also means none of the other X-Men can get up there to help. As a result of which, Storm and the new mutants who had been upstairs, namely Boom Boom, Richter, Warlock, and Wolfsbane, are all taken by the Genosians. And taken by one Genosian in particular, with a signature concentric circle-based power blast. Oh yeah, it's Havoc. Yeah, Havoc, for some reason, as Storm quickly recognizes, is not only with the Genosians, but he's a magistrate. He's one of the leaders of their military. This is surprising. The last time we saw him, he went through the Siege Perilous. Normally, that just sort of resets your life. It judges you karmically-ish, and then you wake up naked somewhere random with no memories of who you are. So the Siege Perilous judged Alex Summers and found him to be kind of an asshole. That actually is something that interests me a lot, because we won't really find out how he became a magistrate, just he is one in this new life. And I wonder if it's that the Siege Perilous, you know, knew that he liked being in charge of things or part of a social order or what? Yeah, he has a lot of trouble saying no to the offer of uniforms and authority, so maybe he just wanted to be part of a system. He does kind of fundamentally mistrust being a mutant and his own mutations, that might have been a factor as well. I don't know, but it is fascinating and strange, and as you might imagine, that's going to be a big deal in this whole crossover. He just popped out of it stark naked going, I don't like the M word. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's like the M speech, but, you know, nakeder. 
So the mutants are captured. Storm, Wolfsbane, Richter, Boom Boom, and Warlock are teleported back to Genosha because the troops realize that soon the cavalry is going to be here. They don't want to fight them. And by the time Cable and everybody else gets up there, gets out of the sub-basement, all they see are the clothes, indeed, of everyone who was teleported back. Naked. Uh, naked, yes. So uh, we should, by the way, advise at this point that our usual costume destruction drinking game rules only specify the destruction in battle of a costume. You should not take a drink every time someone gets nude teleported. Right. That way lies liver failure. And death. So I love this issue a lot, actually. In fact, I think it may be my favorite issue of the entire crossover. Because of the nude teleportation? Oh, no, that's all over the place. I just mean that it's got kind of everything you would look for in an X-Men issue. It's got some quiet downtime with characters reminiscing about the past, really playing on their shared history and backstory. Nude teleportation. It's got rising action, a surprising attack, something that really seems to have high stakes. Nude teleportation. It has unlikely alliances of various characters. And, I mean, basically, it's almost an X-Men type of comic greatest hits. And it certainly sets up the crossover as something that's going to be a big deal and is going to have the teams overlap in a way that they haven't really ever. Also, nude teleportation. Also that. It's just such an arbitrary combination of things. I mean, it's less arbitrary if you look at some of Claremont's other plot devices. It's still pretty arbitrary, and it's just like the kind of power you'd get by rolling a pair of dice. Oh god, yeah, it's like in the Encyclopedia Magica or something. Yeah, it's like, okay, so, uh, oh no, no, it's what you get when you accidentally mix up your sex dice and your, like, random generation gaming dice. <laughs> so, okay, so let's roll for a superpower here. Nigh invulnerable while... Rim job? <laughs> I mean, I guess there'd be benefits to that, yeah. I suppose there would be. I feel like we should probably change the subject before this ends up going to the inevitable long debate over whether it's possible for Wolverine to contract or transmit STDs. Yeah, yeah, I feel like the internet's probably already had that a number of times for us, so let's STDs instead... or the conversation? Eh, potato, potato. The internet, having STDs so you don't have to. <laughs> so let's go to chapter two, which is in New Mutants. Now, this is penciled by Liefeld, yes, but it's labeled as being penciled by Liefeld and Co., which is interesting. I'm assuming this is a deadline thing. He'd been having trouble meeting deadlines at this point. Yeah, you're going to see more and more and company on his titles, more and more Rob Liefeld with and more and more multiple inkers, the latter of which especially is usually a pretty good indicator that the issue got finished in a rush. So we start basically where we left off with our prisoners being teleported into Genosha, into this sort of uh, 1950s Americana meets Epcot Center sci-fi meets the military. Oh man, this is the worst part of Epcot Center. Oh, the part that's based on mutant slaves? Yeah, yeah, the dystopian apartheid ride? Yeah, I, I never liked that one. Yeah, that's really bad. Also, don't ever drink the water that's next to the little cart you're in, especially in that part. I like the idea of there being a Genosha section in it, that in the Marvel Universe, there are all of the little sort of hyper-simplified, kind of offensively stereotyped um, little, little nation areas in Epcot. Oh man, Norway had trolls. I love those trolls. No, Norway was great. Norway had the troll roller coaster. Yes, the troller coaster. It's the best ride there. That's what I would um, call it. Yeah, but what would you put in Genosha? Uh, uncomfortable things. Cool technology, I guess. I guess. Yeah. But they wake up, and they are all, as you said, naked. And they're also there with somebody that they were not expecting to see. And unless you had paid attention to a couple specific panels in recent issues of various X-Books, you were not expecting to see... Cameron Hodge, or rather, the severed head of Cameron Hodge, wired to a giant fucking robot scorpion. 
Because the last time we saw Cameron Hodge not in the shadows, he got decapitated by Archangel, which, you know, was kind of pretty excusable given some of the stuff Cameron Hodge did. But apparently that did not take him out. No, I kind of feel like if anyone in the Marvel Universe at that point was gunning for decapitation, it was Cameron Hodge. Yeah, pretty much after the stuff he pulled. Gunning for decapitation is definitely my new industrial band. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. But as you may recall, during Inferno, he made a deal with the demon Nastier to basically become immortal, and so apparently only being ahead was not that big of a deal. So what we're going to find out is that Hodge has swapped a lot of right technology. That is the right, the anti-mutant organization. Oh, that's what you meant. Yeah, you, you didn't get that? Well, I do now. Oh, buddy. Continue. Anyway, he has swapped a lot of right equipment and technology and science to Genosha in exchange for, as far as I can tell, getting to fuck around with their government at length and just sort of reign like a horrible robot crab-legged murder god. Yeah, his robot body, like, I don't even know how you would describe it. It's got these it's spider scorpion-y. legs. It's scorpion-y, but it's a very protean scorpion. It reminds me of the Technarch just in terms of the shape-shifting and protean nature, but with a much more physical base. Like, the warlock seems like he's just sort of energy and entirely shifting bits. And Cameron Hodge is hardware. He's a mess of cables and wires instead of a neck and instead of a large amount of his body. He's little skittery robot legs and shit. He's great. He's one of the better designed villains. And we talked some smack about Bogdanov earlier on, but man, he draws the best Monster Hodge. When we get to the X-Factor issues, yeah. But the image is just so effective because we have this scary robot body, we have this cackling, maniacally super evil villain, and we still have those characteristic Cameron Hodge round glasses, partially broken, always on his face. Like that little bit of civility on top of the megalomania and sadism just works so well. I was going to say this is Cameron Hodge's final boss form, but it's not quite even. This is his end of act one metamorphosized final boss form. So we have Cameron Hodge gloating over the naked teenagers. We have Rob Liefeld doing a pretty admirable job at manipulating the physics of shadows so that we don't see anything that would, you know, not be okay for teenagers. Liefeld or his anchor. And we have Warlock collapsed on the floor because he is almost out of energy. Something about the teleportation process has sucked away his life glow. He's no nakeder than usual, at least. But, I mean, he's kind of always naked, I guess. I've never thought about that before. Warlock is always naked. So I saw this thing on Tumblr today. This is relevant. And I don't remember who posted it, so apologies. But basically, imagine an alien comes to Earth and it's like, you know, traditional grace, so naked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get to know this alien and you befriend them and, and you assume that that's just a cultural thing. That's what they do. They don't wear clothes. But then you go to their planet and everyone wears clothes, just like on Earth. <laughs> it would make you think. It would make me think. Well, what uh, the situation that Richter finds himself in right now, there we go, makes him think of is the fact that while nobody else here knows who Cameron Hodge is, he very much does. I mean, when Richter was introduced... He was in a horrible, like, pain machine run by the right, which is to say run by Cameron Hodge, the head of the right, that was trying to make him shake down a major city on the West Coast. Like, he is terrified of Cameron Hodge. He hates Cameron Hodge more than he can possibly describe, so he tries to bring the place down using his powers. He just wants to kill this guy. Unfortunately for Richter and for the rest of the New Mutants and Storm— Genosha has Wipeout. Wipeout is a dude who can just take away people's powers. That's his thing. And so the new mutants are rapidly depowered, sedated, and dressed in uh, tight bodysuits. Yes. Yeah. We're getting into sort of Morlock healing territory. We are. Well, what Genosha does when they're going to turn a mutant into a mutate is that they put them in kind of a. It reminds me of the outfits that 
lugers wear in the Olympics. Lugists? I don't know what that word is. Or speed skaters. Yeah, I can kind of see that. And they bond those outfits to the people so they can never take them off. They're just part of them. These people are all being prepared to be turned into mutates, to have their mind wiped, to have their powers optimized, to be of better service to the state, and to be enslaved. Or, as Boom Boom puts it, Can you believe it? They said from now on we have no names. Well, answer to numbers? Man, that stinks. Grounded for life, and we haven't even done anything yet. But it gets worse than that because Warlock is dying. I mean, most of his life force was drained by that force teleport, and he doesn't really have enough left to persist. The kids offer to do what Doug's done a few times and share some of their own life force. Let him basically have some of their energy. He warns them that they could get infected with a transmode virus if this happens. They could, like, you know, start to turn into a technart kind of being. Uh, we may need you safe and sound to rescue us or something. And and you can't if you're, like, dead. Warlock ain't buying it. Dear self-friend Boom Boom, your pretext of self-interest fools no one. Never in the annals of self's race has one of my kind had such stalwart friends. Oh, Warlock. Oh, New Mutants. Even Boom Boom is being compassionate, even if she's too embarrassed to say so. Boom Boom has always been relatively compassionate. She just hides it under a stalwart facade of self-interest and the word like and awesome sunglasses. Unfortunately, we're going to see another instance of what's going to happen a lot in this crossover, which is Cameron Hodge showing up out of nowhere to ruin everything. Away from him, little nameless numbers. Little mutant unpersons. This is not what I had in mind. It is not you, but I, who will be infected by Warlock's transmode virus, and will derive the ability to shift the shape of my body at will. He drags Warlock off and brings him to the Genegineer, who is just now counseling a boy who's about to be turned into a mutate and saying, well, you know, it's okay, I know you're concerned about this, but don't worry about your family being upset when they see you, they probably won't even recognize you. It's okay. And I mean, as much as you're describing it that way, Jay, like, Claremont does write the Genegineer as genuinely attempting to be compassionate. No, the thing is, what I'm paraphrasing is basically what he's saying. Like, he is trying really hard to address this kid's concerns. It's just, like, he's someone who's maybe read about compassion. But that interests me, because the Genegineer is not just a mustache-twirling villain, and he does have a mustache, so he could twirl. Do you feel like he'd get along really well with Reed Richards? You know, kind of, yeah. They're both good at convincing themselves that their unethical methods are actually for the best. And they're both really bad at reassuring children. And good at science. See? They'd totally be BFFs. I do like, though, that next to Cameron Hodge, who is just horrible, I mean, he's like the Kefka of, of this era of X-Men, we have the Gene Engineer who, even though he does terrible, like, undeniably terrible things, he at least thinks he's in the right. And that always makes a villain very interesting to me. I'm picturing... Cameron Hodge is a clown now, and I'm not sure whether that takes the edge off or makes him scarier. Because on one hand, clowns and horror and all that, but on the other hand, it kind of lends him an air of absurdity, and I think he's just the right level of over-the-top right now. I, I think agree. if you push it too far, he loses some of his impact. And so Warlock, who's been, you know, taken prisoner, witnesses the Gene Engineer and Hodge talking about what the mutate bonding process is going to be. He manages to slither away while they're distracted to go tell the New Mutants what's up and realizing how high the stakes are to free them. He can interact with technology. The bars of the cage are technological-ish, even though Liefeld just draws them as normal cage bars. And Warlock manages to short them out, but at the cost of most of his life force. Because remember, he didn't have a chance to recharge from his friends. The New Mutants, of course, want to bring him with them or give him some of their life force right now. I mean, he's going to die or get caught, and if he gets caught, who knows what's going to happen? But Warlock talks them out of it. 
Friend Boom Boom, there is no time. Listen, guards are coming and self is inert to walk, too heavy for you to carry. Run, escape, call X-Factor, you must not let self-sacrifice be in vain. And they listen to him. They split up and they run because the magistrates and Hodge are, you know, hot on Warlock's heels. And that's the last we see of Warlock for a little bit. We have Richter and Wolfsbane and Boom Boom and Storm just running the hell away. Now, they're each supposed to go in a different direction, but Richter and Rain pause for some mid-peril makeouts. Yeah, and this is actually the first time we've seen them kiss on panel. And in fact, the first time I believe that they've kissed ever. You always remember your first kiss in the Genosian evil science headquarters while fleeing for your life. And so as they split up, uh, each going in a different direction, Richter makes Rain promise that she is not going to go back for Warlock, that she's going to keep herself safe. He couldn't bear the thought of her being in danger, her being turned into a mutate. She promises and promptly goes back for Warlock. Because that's Rain. I mean, that's what she does. I love Rick. I want to do as he wishes. But Doug was the last teammate who will sacrifice himself for me. This is a bad decision, and it is a bad decision that is perfectly in character for Wolfsbane, and thus a satisfying one for the reader. And a bad decision that is going to haunt her for a very, very long time. Because she finds Warlock, who has already been captured by Cameron Hodge, who has already been strapped into some weird Genosian technology so that Hodge can extract Warlock's shape-shifting abilities, and Warlock in the process is going to die. Now... Rain doesn't have access to her powers, but she has been trained by Cable, which means she can do Rob Liefeld kicks. And this is a serious scene, but so Rob Liefeld at this point in time only draws kicks in one way, and he draws a lot of kicks in fights, and it's always straight on, and it's always just sort of from casually standing, and it's it's so funny. It's pretty weird, but it's also effective in this case because Rain manages to partially interrupt the transfer of energy. She manages to ruin it so that the transmode virus doesn't get fully transferred to Hodge. Unfortunately, she does not interrupt it sufficiently to save Warlock, who disintegrates into dust. Yeah, he glows brighter and brighter yellow under these Kirby dots. The lines on him that show the different circuits become simpler and simpler. And he's a pile of dust. He is dead. We're in part two of a nine-part crossover. And one of the most beloved X-Men characters in X-Men history, I mean, he'll be back, sure, but he's dead and he's going to stay dead for kind of a long time. So you mentioned that he's going to come back and we're not even close to there, but I'm going to say Warlock's resurrection is, I think, one of the best handled in X-Men history. It is, yeah. But for right now, even knowing he's going to come back, this is rough, especially dying right in front of Wolfsbane, who fails yet again to save somebody who saved her. Like, With no last words and as kind of a narrative afterthought. It's sort of a punch to the heart, and I, I do wish this, should, this had been given a little more time to breathe. I mean, so much happens in these issues, yes, but just to focus for a moment on losing a character that we've come to love so much would have been really nice. He was too good and pure for this world. Yeah, pretty much that. No, he really kind of was. Can you imagine if he had survived onto X-Force? That would not have worked in the least. It is really easy to imagine him trying to be Cable, like shapeshifting into, you know, with all the guns and ridiculousness. That would be pretty great, yeah. But, yeah, he's not a member of the New Mutants anymore because he's gone. Like, this crossover actually has genuine teeth. So many teeth. Look at Cameron Hodge. That's a lot of teeth. So back in uh, the United States, back at the Mansion Ruins, Cable, Banshee, and all of those folks who, you know, have finally made it to the surface to see the discarded clothing of the characters who were teleported away investigate, 
and they figure maybe we should get some help here. Maybe we should call X-Factor, and they do. And it's a good thing they do because Cyclops sees some of the damage, specifically some fused metal, and immediately recognizes the signature of Havoc's powers. Yeah, he knows what his brother's powers look like. And if his brother was part of the army from Genosha that kidnapped these kids, then something is seriously, seriously not okay. Like, even less okay than it would have been otherwise. The news, meanwhile, is reporting on Rain's capture and Warlock's accidental death when the X-Men are collectively interrupted by an urgent phone call. The president wants to meet with them. Which brings us to X-Factor number 60. So we mentioned that John Bogdanov does the art for the X-Factor installments of the Extinction Agenda, and I want to talk a little bit about his work here, because if you've been listening to the podcast for very long, you know that John Bogdanov is one of the fill-in artists we're always happiest to see. We love his work on Power Pack. We love some of the stuff he's done with New Mutants. We love some of the X-Factor stuff he's done. And unfortunately, what this crossover has taught us is basically we love it when he's drawing teenagers or happy domestic moments, and I guess also really scary techno-organic supervillains. Yeah, because we started seeing a weird trend with his work in Days of Future Present. It's very lumpy. All the male characters, all the male adult characters, they're just sort of bags of random muscle shapes. Like, I know the 90s had a lot of buffness. I mean, Jim Lee's characters certainly work out so much that they have muscles on top of muscles that most people have never even heard of. And no skin. Uh, Well, yes. But Bogdanov's figures are just strange. They're so exaggerated that for me, it distracts a lot from the story. So the X-Factor chapters, for that reason, are my least favorite in the Extinction Agenda. I really wonder how much of that is Bogdanov and how much of it is Milgram, because I think a lot of the issues with the faces here are problems with the inks. And there's generally some weirdness. The president of Genosha is notable. And you noted that she looks like Ronald Reagan, and I don't think she does. She looks like someone wearing a bad rubber Ronald Reagan mask over their normal face. Like in Point Break? Yes. Oh, yeah, kind of. You think she is? Maybe she's just doing that. Maybe that's just a thing. That would be amazing. Maybe. Well, like you said, though, Bogdanov's Hodge is awesome because Hodge is also in this scene, and he is terrifying. I'm still stuck on the Reagan mask. Can you imagine if the heads of sovereign nations just regularly did that? Just showed up for meetings or press releases wearing bad masks of each other? Well, now I can. Huh. What a world that would be. Right. So, Ronald Reagan, I mean, the president of Genosha, and Cameron Hodge are talking. And Hodge looks a little different than last time we saw him, because in a glorious, glorious visual conceit, he has a cardboard cutout of a normal, generic, suited human body hanging from his neck in front of the weird scorpion robot thing that is his body. The enormous robot scorpion thing that is his body. This does not make him look more human. In fact, it makes him look distinctly less human, and it's great. It is one of the creepiest touches, and it's, oh, it's so effective. Yeah, definitely check out the visual companion for that one, because it's just so perfectly done. And they're arguing, and the gene engineer quickly shows up to argue as well, because the Genosians are realizing that what they're doing is going to call down the ire of not just the X-Men, which they knew was going to happen, that was part of the point, but the entire world. They do not look good with teenagers being kidnapped and then dying in their custody. Meanwhile, in America, news crews are discussing the state of affairs behind the scenes. The U.S. government has cut off relations with Genosha after the kidnapping, but will try sanctions before war. The X-Men, on the other hand, have the opposite plan. In Manhattan, Banshee, Sunspot, and Cannonball are preparing their aircraft with what the um, caption describes as the esoteric paraphernalia of war. That is a great phrase. I feel like that's the phrase you use when you can't quite identify what particular weaponry your artist drew, but you know it's something weapony. 
What we also have here is a chance for some of the characters to mourn because they saw the news. They saw what happened to Warlock. Sam especially is having a hard time with this. I can't believe we'll never see him again. Have him call us cell friends. Make us laugh. To which Sunspot responds, Listen, Sam, I've been thinking. Just because they say Warlock's dead doesn't mean it's true. We thought the X-Men were dead, too, remember? And it was only a hoax. And we thought Doug was dead and he stayed dead. Meanwhile, the news has been tracking down the families of the captured mutants, including Boom Boom's complete asshole of a father. And I think this is the first time we've actually seen him on panel, right? Like, we've heard of him when Boom Boom first showed up in Secret Wars 2, but we've never actually seen the guy. Yeah, no, I don't think we've ever actually seen him before. He's talking about how maybe being a captive of Genosha will teach Boom Boom some respect. He's terrible, and also he has a weird little rumpled tiny sailor hat, which is a little strange. He's a jerk, and Lee Forrester should come beat him up for making sailors look bad. And just for... Being awful in general. Yeah, don't hit kids. So as this is all happening, X-Factor and Cable and Forge fly to Washington, D.C. for their meeting with the president. Turns out it isn't actually the president. Maybe that was some confusion from issue to issue. Who knows? It's Val Cooper. Actually, it's Mystique pretending to be Val Cooper, but that doesn't really matter here. Right. She, of course, is the government's liaison with mutants. She basically says that, okay, we know this is in retaliation for the X-Men's attack on Genosha back in Uncanny X-Men 235-238, and for aiding the escaped Jenny Ransom and Philip Moreau. The government, they're working slowly, and officially they're going to work in quieter ways. But if unofficially and secretly the X-Men want to do whatever they feel is necessary, the government sure as hell won't stop them. So she also passes along a bunch of information on Genosha, and the X-Men head off to pick up Banshee, Cannonball, Sunspot, Gambit, and uh, the esoteric paraphernalia of war, and for once make the surprising decision not to bring baby Nathan Christopher into an active war zone. So that's a positive thing. Instead, Nathan Christopher stays with Iceman's girlfriend, Opal Tanaka. She's going to stay back and think about the upcoming Cyber Eye storyline that's going to involve her. Yeah, we've got kind of a reunion going on here of X-Factor's supporting cast, I guess except for Charlotte Jones, who I presume is still up to her neck in paperwork. Presumably, and Trish Tilby is off in India right now, I think. Right, yes, she is journalizing. So all of the heroes land in Genosha after a while, and this part's interesting because they send Cannonball and Archangel out to scout saying that their other flyer, Banshee, can't do so because he's too loud. Like, wait, he's- wait, wait, wait. So I recognize that Cannonball can probably quiet his blast field, but it's really hard not to imagine him just going vroom. And we know for a fact from sound effects that Archangel definitely goes scree. The Archangel goes scree. The Cannonball goes vroom. Yeah, I guess they've both learned to be very quiet, but that is surprising. And they've made landfall. They are now assaulting Genosha. Like, the big attack has begun... And they're noticed very, very quickly because Wipeout, Havoc, and the Magistrates attack. Marvel Girl neatly takes out Wipeout, so they've all still got their powers. Beast and Sunspot do some synchronized punching. It's so great. They're so pleased, like being back-to-back, punching each other. I kind of feel like this is Sunspot's best day in a long time. And Cyclops and Havoc neatly destroy each other's clothing, so you can drink at this point. Yes, yes, that one's allowed. Cyclops quickly realizes that, yeah, his brother is in fact here. The dude with the plasma blast is for some goddamn reason Alex Summers, who thinks he's a magistrate of Genosha. That's not okay. What the hell, Havoc? You're the worst. And so Scott keeps yelling at Alex about who he really is. You are always too stubborn for your own good. Listen to me, butthead. Try to think. So, okay, shredded clothing, brothers yelling at each other, lots of emotions. This is basically what Supernatural is every week, right? Everything I know about Supernatural comes from Tumblr, so I'm under the impression that it involves more kissing and possibly a car. Oh, okay. Well, that's legit. 
Scott almost has Alex convinced, you know, just giving him fact after fact and feeling. Does he? I thought he was just sort of yelling at him and Alex was just sort of hanging out, having his head slammed into the ground repeatedly. Like he doesn't really look so much convinced. Well, it's at least making him question. But yes, Scott does have Alex literally by the ears as he smacks his head into the ground again and again. That looks so painful. Don't squeeze his head, Cyclops. That doesn't work on anyone. Right. But eventually Alex says, screw this and takes his magistrates and they retreat leaving Cable and Cyclops to strategize about what to do next. And also a whole bunch of magistrate clothes. Uh, Yes, that's true, because of naked teleportation. Naked return teleportation. But dude, seeing Cable and Cyclops working together, like, you know, we don't know at this point that they're father and son. That's not going to be retconned for a long time. But in retrospect, it's actually very satisfying and kind of heartwarming. Yeah, every time it happens. I mean, they clash so much over the years that the times when they're just like, let's just be the kind of unhinged, badass, tactical masterminds we are in concert. It's always great. It's always just sort of an amazing, like, music swells team-up moment. And Hodge, of course, is watching all of this. Like any proper supervillain, he's got a room full of monitors. And it turns out it was all part of his plan because Cameron Hodge is the most intricately organized supervillain ever. And he has apparently brought his color-coded and alphabetized binders full of villainy with him to Genosha. He was hoping that Alex would be defeated and so shamed so he'd have something to prove. And the heroes don't know their true enemies. The president, with her fanatic's desire to extend Genosha's power and prestige, even if it means a war. The self-deceiving Jean-Genier, who creates a service race of slaves, and yet would destroy his own son to preserve this illusion of peace. And I who was once your friend, and am now your oldest and most obsessive enemy, I will destroy you as one of you has destroyed me. And with Genosha as my base, I will obliterate your mutant race from Earth. So plan well, Cyclops. Man, he's so good at villaining. And that is the first third of the Extinction Agenda. So all the characters are basically in one place at this point, Some have been captured, some have been killed, the heroes have some plans, maybe they're going to be okay. It's going to get a lot darker before it gets lighter, though. In the meantime, you've got questions. Megan emailed us to ask, Hi guys, I've been reading through the Silver Age, and Jean's Danger Room segments keep sticking out to me. They're consistently much simpler and less dangerous than anything the male members of the team are doing, threading a needle, for example. While I get that this is supposed to emphasize finesse with her powers, the consistent choice to have the lone woman focus on tasks that are notably not strength-based, that easily could have had her trying to lift and throw heavy objects, stop incoming missile-based attacks, etc., seems deliberate. There's even a moment in issue number 9 in which the X-Men are going into battle, and each character gets a little moment to show off their powers as they charge in, but Jean's introduction is just moving a log over a hole so that she doesn't accidentally step in it. Am I reading too much into this, or is this something you've noticed as well? You are not reading too much into this. It is definitely there, and it is some bullshit. Although I do really love the whole moving a plank over a hole thing just because While narrating it laboriously? It's one of my favorite Silver Age X-Men moments. You know, out of context. In context, I agree, it's part of a lot of bullshit. But yeah, it's it's super bullshit, and a lot of Jean's training is relegated to the domestic sphere. This is something that you'll see pretty pronouncedly with the Invisible Woman as well in Silver Age Fantastic Four. And it's an ongoing issue, and my personal headcanon is that the Dark Phoenix was less a result of uncontrolled power than decades of pent-up frustration at being forced to fucking sew in the danger room. It's like super-powered home economics, yeah. Okay, super-powered home economics would be legitimately awesome. But, I mean, consider, for instance, how well-suited or versatile, say, Beast would be at that. He's got prehensile toes. Why is he not doing those dexterity exercises? 
I kind of feel like he does on his own time. I kind of feel oh, like he would unquestionably. Have to. I suspect that if there were anyone who would be amicable to that too, it's Beast. Or, you know, Bobby figuring out how to make really fancy ice cream or something. Bobby did love ice cream a lot back in the Silver Age. Yeah, but- he ate a ton of it. He kind of lived on it. But yeah, no, it is obnoxious. It's entirely gendered. It is incredibly pervasive, and it is frustrating as hell to read. Thankfully, with the new teenage Jean Grey in the Marvel Universe right now, headlining her own book and leading a team, we get to see her do things that are, you know, more generally badass and not specifically, like, weaving badass. I will say also that this is one of, I mean, there are, there are a lot of reasons that I prefer X-Men Season 1 to the Silver Age as a whole, or most of the Silver Age. There are notable exceptions. And Jean's representation is definitely the biggest aspect of that. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, if you were introducing the X-Men in 2017, what would you do differently? That's actually a really good question. Well, it's challenging, too, because part of how we see and contextualize superheroes is based so heavily around X-Men who have existed since the 60s. Yeah, I mean, continuity is kind of what we do. But okay, if we were starting from scratch just with the basic premise of mutants and of the X-Men, you know, hated and feared, all that good stuff. I would say I would love to have more actual diversity from the start. I mean, we've talked a lot about the importance of intersectionality in X-Men as far as having the mutant metaphor not just replace actual diversity, but, you know, exist alongside it to sort of provide more nuance and different angles to look at it. So, yeah, let's have a team of starting X-Men who aren't just five attractive white kids. Let's have different races, abilities, sexualities, gender identities, whatever. Let's make it more representative of the world at large. I would have them be a lot less centralized. I would have them have a lot less power and a lot less wealth at their disposal and basically be working from a much, much more marginal position relative to society as a whole as well as relative to the larger superhero establishment. It would also be cool to see, given the nature of mutancy, some powers that weren't so like generic superpowery, you know, eye lasers, ice control, that sort of thing. But one thing I would never, ever change, I would not get rid of the black and yellow because that shit was tight. Right on. So we are an entirely listener-supported project, and uh, some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the air from a number of fictional entities. I believe that today the microphone belongs to, oh, to Sexy Nightcrawler. I hear only a detail here, a tidbit there about my old friend's problems in Genosha. I would help, but there seems to be no room for me or mine in this crossover. But perhaps that wicked nation has at least one good idea. Ms. Superconductor and Alexander Williams, mein Freunds, how do you feel about nude teleportation? I'm so glad you worked in the nude teleportation. I got your back. So this is normally where we'd go into the outro, but actually uh, before we see you off today, we have an announcement. So we take a lot of pride in putting out the podcast on a regular and reliable schedule. In more than three years of recording, I think we've skipped a total of like three weeks and mm-hmm. all of those but one were with significant advance notice. So we work really hard to get this out regularly and on time. But that's kind of taken some toll. Among other things, we've always been running to catch up pretty much from the start. And we haven't really had time to give the podcast solid infrastructure. So we are going to be taking a three-month recording hiatus starting at the beginning of May, right after we conclude the Extinction Agenda. That'll give Jay time to get settled in New York. And to establish the foundations for a fully functional bicoastal criminal empire. So we will be back at the very beginning of August, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And of course, the website and our full back catalog will stay up during the hiatus, and we'll probably be around on Twitter and Tumblr to at least some extent. And of course, we'll also be working on our own projects as well. I'm going to be kind of all over the place and probably writing online some. I have a couple sort of backburner podcast projects that I might end up exploring or might not, or I might mostly end up uh, dealing with moving stuff. 
And with the business end of things, uh, Miles, I think you have something a bit larger planned. I do. So because apparently I'm allergic to uh, taking breaks from things, I'm going to be doing a limited series show of my own called Thor, The Lightning and the Storm about Walter Simonson's 1980s run on Thor. It should last for about uh, 12 episodes, give or take. And it's going to be with Elizabeth Alley, who you may be familiar with. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, sweet. Where can folks check that out or find it online? You can definitely check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And we also have an Indiegogo page if you want to give that a look. Yeah, I should add, and I should mention, if you're a Patreon subscriber, we're going to be talking about this at more length on the Patreon blog, but we are going to be pausing the Patreon and taking that offline for the three months that the podcast is off the air. But before all of that, we've got two episodes of The Extinction Agenda to wrap up. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the Extinction Agenda continues as the Gene Engineer strikes back. (laughs) 